Well, I've been brought here by the grace of God and by the friendship of Bill Haynes. And uh, I'm receiving an admonition as I stand here. It says you are required to believe, teach, and preach what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true. And <clears throat> you are required to <clears throat> hear and receive and conduct yourselves and embrace what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true. It is a part of the community of faith that we have that we are under authority. We've been brought together by divine revelation, not by our desires for better social contacts and not by our desires for a series of groups that minister to our felt needs, but we're brought together because a proclamation has been sent forth that comes from the God of truth himself, uh, and it is a transforming experience when we come together in a community of believers. We believe in Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because the revelation that we have of him has come to us in such a way as we can think about it and process it, and then the Spirit brings his person alive to us in our minds and our hearts and draws us together by that truth. One of the sweetest truths of the Scripture, and yet at many times I think one of the hardest for human pride to absorb and receive is the truth of God's grace. And I think it's a wonderful thing that a part of the theme that you have this week is that we stand on the truth of God's grace. There are two scarlet threads in the Bible. One of them is the scarlet thread of human sin that is very bold and in a very wide swath plunges its way through all the texts of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation showing the hardness of heart, the rebelliousness, the callousness, the refusal to believe the truth, the tendency to believe a lie rather than the truth, the tendency to seek uh, pleasure in this world and avoid the greater pleasure that comes uh, in eternity. Uh, and <clears throat> our sins indeed are as crimson, dyed in scarlet, impenetrable by any sort of human-made detergent or cleansing agent that would draw them out. And yet there's another scarlet thread that begins in the Garden of Eden and winds its way throughout the pages of Scripture also. And wherever that scarlet thread intersects with the broad swath of human sin, there is an immediate purification of that first one, and it becomes as white as snow. And every time we see that thread of the blood of Christ that is the very embodiment of this grace that we're talking about tonight, come into human sin, then we see a sinner washed whiter than snow. I think the Apostle Paul was the one who was the embodiment of both of these. He was the one who claimed, and I think rightly so, to be the foremost of sinners. He incarnated Israel in its haughty arrogance, its exquisite self-righteousness, 
thinking that because he had the revelation of God and had memorized the revelation of God, that he was better than all around him and he himself confesses that he advanced far beyond even all of his other countrymen in his knowledge and in his zeal for the traditions of his forefathers. And in a way, perhaps even greater than the chief priests and the scribes who arrested Jesus and saw to it that he was crucified, he hated Christ as a blasphemer. He hated Christians as blasphemers. And he, above all others, because of the great privilege he had of learning, should have known more than any others exactly what the Christ had to suffer. And he should have seen in Christ when he heard about him that he was the Messiah. And yet he... fostered in his soul that rebellion and that hatred that came into the minds and hearts of those who were looking for earthly pleasure, earthly freedom, earthly liberty. They wanted someone to come and to free them and Christ said that, you see this temple? All of it's going to be destroyed. There's nothing glorious about this temple. There's nothing glorious about this nation. Now, the Gentiles are going to come and trample on this city. Right at the time when they thought that he should be freeing them, Jesus said, it's going to get harder and there's not going to be a glorious kingdom set up by the Messiah in this coming. The very people who are expecting me are going to reject me and kill me. And Paul embodied the hatred that they had that this one who claimed to be the Messiah only led to a path of humiliation and called people to take up a cross and told them to put down their sword. And so when Paul talks about himself and his coming to understand the gospel, he said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me Faithful. Now, that does not mean that he looked at him and saw that he was indeed at heart a faithful person. This is a construction that means that he accounted him faithful. He was going to put him into a position where by his grace he would make him faithful all the way to the end so that he would indeed suffer for the cause of Christ. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And a person who's acting ignorantly in unbelief, what else can they have but mercy? The fact that he says he received mercy is not saying I received mercy because I deserved it. Acting insolently and acting in unbelief was the very thing that made him a candidate for mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord overflowed. Now, grace is an overflowing of goodness already. Anytime you see the word grace, you know that it is something that is coming that is undeserved. It is something that is arising out of the benevolence and out of the goodness of the one who gives it. And so when the Apostle Paul talks about grace overflowing, he is talking about something that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. When grace overflows, when that which is already an overflow is overflowing, he is saying that there were there was a series of events and a series of things that had to happen and all had to conspire that are manifestations of the wisdom of God and every attribute of God that relates to His love and His mercy and His loving kindness. All of these things are overflowing to bring a sinner like I am, Paul would say, and each of you would say like I am too if you know the grace of God. There was an overflowing of this in order to put me in a right relationship with him. And Paul says the fact that grace could overflow to him, that he is the foremost of all sinners, that he is the embodiment of all the callousness and insolence and rebellion, that the ones who should know the most had against the Messiah, that him against whom the proclamation could be made it will be more tolerable than the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. That could be said about Paul, and yet grace overflowed. Grace precedes us. Grace accompanies us. Grace is in the future. Grace sustains us, and grace will be present in eternity. Paul was so overwhelmed with grace that he could not write without talking about it. And he wanted everyone to whom he write, wrote, whether it was a church or whether it was an individual, to begin thinking about grace at the start of his letters and to end his letter thinking about grace. And everything in between was a manifestation, an exposition somehow of grace. If we would look at the salutations or the first parts of the letters of Paul, <clears throat> we would see that in Romans 1.7, in 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.12, Philippians 1.2, 2 Thessalonians 1.2, Philemon 3, all of them say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very beginning of all these books. Colossians 1-2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. 1 Thessalonians 1-1 says, Grace to you and peace. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 2 of both letters, say, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He begins every letter 
pointing out that for them to survive, for them to understand, for them to honor God, for them to receive with delight and submission the instruction and the admonition he has for them, they're going to have to receive it in the sphere of grace. And then as he closes his letters, before he has some special words at the end of Romans, in Romans 16, 20, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 1 Corinthians 16, 23, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 6, 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians 6.24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians 4.18, grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 1 Timothy 6.21 and 2 Timothy 4.22, Grace be with you. Titus 3.15, grace be with you all. Philemon 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's amazing. It's so insistent. He won't let us rest from thinking about grace. Hear me with grace. And now after you've heard me, proceed with grace. If you understand what I've written and if you will do what I say, it will be because grace accompanies you. Grace be with you. As we think about grace, we recognize that it has both an objective and a subjective nature. It is objective in that there are certain specific events or certain things that God does for us, that he sets out before us that are manifestations of his grace. We'll look at some of these. The incarnation is a grace. The cross is a grace. The reality of justification is a grace. The existence of particular gifts in the church are graces. When we look at the book of 1 Corinthians and we see all of the gifts that are given, these are the charismata. These are the gifts of particular graces for a certain time when they needed to have these grace gifts of revelation so that they could understand the completed work of Christ and interpret it in accordance with the gospel in the new covenant. Those are objective manifestations of grace. But there's a subjective manifestation of grace also, and that is an operation of God in which He changes our affections and changes our will. The passage that was read for us earlier out of Ephesians 2 has that subjective operation of grace when it talks about that we were, ch we were changed, that we were brought from death and trespasses and sins, and we were made alive, the affections were altered, the will was altered, the mind was changed. There is an operation of grace in a powerful way in which he effectually draws us so that we now respond to the message that is given us by grace. Now grace is not the only thing that is an attribute of God. But grace is what we might call a summary word for all of those attributes that are manifest in the redemption of sinners. The complexity of God 
or the, the, the multiplicity of ways in which his simple holiness and beauty manifests itself and its operations in the world are, are incomprehensible. There are so many that we really could not name all of them. The Scripture names many of them for us. And there's justice and there's truth and uh, there <clears throat> are elements of, of, of wrath and God's vindication of his own name. All of these things arise uh, out of the desire that God has to show how truly great his justice is and how fierce his wrath can be and the manifestation of perfect holiness. But when it comes to the way that he operates towards sinners that he is going to save, sinners that are in rebellion against him, sinners that deserve to see the vindication of his justice and deserve to see his wrath, and they receive so many gifts from him, that which overflows, as Paul said, in all these gifts is summarized in this term, grace. It embodies, it is, the, it is this great big bowl that has within it all these wonderful gifts that God is determined to bestow on sinners to give them the delights of being in his presence. And so grace comes to us in many forms. We learn in 2 Timothy that grace has preceded us in a way that it is that which determined even before the foundation of the world that he would have a people for himself. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we see this grace is given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but when this grace is manifest, it's manifest in the appearing of Christ, it's manifest in his ab abolishing death and by his own death and bringing life and immortality to light by his resurrection and then appointing preachers of the gospel, all of these things are manifest in the grace that he has given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Grace begins it all at the beginning. We're dependent not upon a God who is reacting to various things that he simply did not know were going to happen. He's having to change his Mind, we look at a God who is determined that he will demonstrate his glory through his grace. And as this text says, it was his grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. All of God's activities in eternity past will evoke praise in eternity future. And so as this text suggests to us, we see that it was grace also when the Lord Jesus Christ came. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Christ's coming was an act of his own grace. It was an act of his grace that was a part of this purpose and grace given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It was a grace when he humiliated himself to become embodied in our nature. When the Holy Spirit 
created in the womb of the Virgin Mary, a human nature that the eternal Son of God immediately embraced at the point of conception so that the holy thing that was born of Mary was called the Son of God. This was grace. He not only took to himself our nature, he took to himself the purpose of our obedience. And though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. He lived in obedience to the Father. He suffered humiliation. He never failed to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then even though he deserved the reward in his human nature of that great enthronement as the prince that would be stall, installed on the holy hill. Nevertheless, he, for, he set that aside for a while and endured the wrath of God. That was his grace. That is what the Apostle Paul talks about again in Ephesians 1 when he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so that grace given us in Christ Jesus before the world began had become something that is manifest in the incarnation of Christ. It is manifest in the obedience of Christ. It is manifest now in the death of Christ in which he died the just for the unjust. This grace is something that is indeed summarized as the entire message of the gospel. When the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel that he preached to the Galatians, he says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. This, this concept of the grace of Christ means that everything that Christ has done for our salvation, all that he was and all that he did and all that he continues to do in his intercession, that is the gospel. That's the grace of Christ. And then when he is fearful that they have not understood this, he says in the the fifth chapter, verses 3 and 4 of Galatians, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now what he is not saying here is that there are some who have genuinely received grace they have been born again and they have been implanted in Christ and they have been justified and now experientially they fall away from grace. They become lost again. That is not what he's saying. Don't, don't take a tape of this and then isolate that section where I was explaining what he's not saying and take the knots out and say, Nettle said that you can be justified and fall away from grace. That's not, 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 not what I'm saying. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about the possibility that there are those among the Galatians who have not understood this message and if they can be drawn back so easily into thinking that there's something about their keeping the ceremonial law that will add to the righteousness of Christ, they have not understood grace. If they're going to keep the ceremonial law by requiring circumcision, then how much more must they keep the moral law, the whole law? He says, if you 
submit to circumcision, if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And immediately he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Why? Because it's a part of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he's the one who kept the law for us. He is the one who has the perfect righteousness. He's the one that became the curse for us. And if you think that there's anything you can add to the completed work of Christ, if you think that there's anything that you can do that will somehow fulfill Christ's righteousness or that will somehow create greater efficacy in his atonement, then you have not embraced this gospel. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from the teaching about grace. You have never grasped what it means to see yourself totally dependent upon God, totally at His mercy, to flee, to take refuge in Christ with no hope of righteousness in yourself at all. And so the grace of Christ is a summary term for the gospel and to rely upon anything other than the grace of Christ is to be severed from Him. We're dependent upon grace, and we receive grace gladly, and we must be willing to be saved by grace and nothing but grace. <clears throat> Paul refers to this message when he says, you are fallen from grace. He's talked about the message that he preaches. You have not understood the message. You've not embraced the message. In fact, he views the preaching of this message and the knowledge of this message as an act of divine grace. In Ephesians 3, as he's talking about the mystery that has been revealed to him, <clears throat> in verses 7 through 10, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So his ministry was the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. That is one of those subjective, internal operations of God. To me, now notice again the claim that he makes here, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here's the grace that is given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what does he do in this preaching? to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He was given a ministry by grace and he was given a message by grace. His insight into the mystery of God was grace. If we understand the gospel today through the revelation of the Bible, why do we understand the gospel? Well, it's because it was given us by grace in the revelation of it, in the proclamation of it, in the recording of it, and it's because the Spirit works upon our mind by grace to open our hearts so that we desire to take refuge in it. So grace has been operating from before the world began according to the purpose and grace of God given us in Christ Jesus. It operates in Christ's incarnation. It operates in his obedience, it operates in his death, it operates in his resurrection, it operates in the calling of the ministry 
It operates in the giving of the message. Grace, indeed, is overflowing. But we see also in the passage that has been read for us so appropriately in earlier moments of this service, it is grace that is operating in the context of love and mercy that changes our hearts so that a message we would not have believed apart from grace we now believe. We read in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He just puts that in right at that point. He's going to say more about it later. But the fact that we were raised with Christ, raised with Christ objectively in his death, burial, and resurrection, we were in Christ in union with him. And then experientially by the operation of the Spirit, when the deadness of our souls is taken away by the Spirit and we are raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, he would show the immeasurable riches. It's got to be in the coming ages because that's the only time we have enough time for a continued unfolding of the immeasurable riches of his grace. It'll never be exhausted. There'll never be any time when we're not fascinated with the wisdom of God shown in his grace, with the the tender mercies of God that are shown in His grace, the loving kindness of God that is shown in His grace, the matchless power and wisdom shown in the incarnation of one who is just fit and appropriate to be our Redeemer. All of this is the unfolding of His grace, the immeasurable riches of His grace shown us in Christ Jesus. And so the message has come by grace, and then when we hear the message, grace operates to bring us into an understanding and an embracing of this. And in the book of Titus, we have another presentation of how this grace of regeneration also brings us then into a state, a legal state of being accepted before God. It says, when the goodness and kindness, loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, again back to the theme of Galatians, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the same thought set within a different context of the work of the Spirit that we have, though, in Romans 3, where it's set in the context of the objectivity of what God has done in grace when He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His 
blood to be received by faith. So there's an operation of the Holy Spirit to bring us into a reception of what Christ has done. He's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Spirit is. And then we're justified by His grace. And we're justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. All of this is incorporated in the grace that God has given us. <clears throat> and He's setting His Son forth as a propitiation for our sins by blood, as a sacrifice, receiving divine wrath, in the taking away of His life, the human infliction of death upon this one who is in our stead and in our nature. That propitiatory sacrifice is a part of the overflowing of this grace, objectively, whereby the Scripture can say, therefore, being justified by His grace, we have the hope of eternal life. And so once we have that... <clears throat> We can speak about this grace being something that is solid, something that is secure. We can speak about it being something that characterizes our life in Christ every day. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since by faith we've cast away hope in our own righteousness, we've abandoned anything, any idea that we can save ourselves and contribute to our salvation in any way. We have fled to Christ in His completed work. We have fled to Christ in His mercy. And we are justified, pronounced righteous. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. If you have come into union with Christ by faith, there is a grace in which you stand. You stand as a person that is justified. You stand as a person that is pronounced righteous. You stand as a person that has all the perfect obedience of Christ to the law applied to your account. You stand as a person who has been forgiven because Christ has taken your sins in his own body on the tree in order that you, being dead to sin, might live to righteousness. This is a grace in which you stand. You stood in it the moment you had faith. You stood in it a year after you had faith. You stand in it now. You will stand in it tomorrow. You will stand in it when you are in heaven. This is the grace in which we stand. This is the entree before the throne of God. We are pronounced righteous and all of the other superabundances of grace flow to us because we can now enter before him as a just God who has given his law and is satisfied that we now have life by the keeping of that law in our substitute. It is a grace in which we stand. And so this grace in which we stand justified is one that gives security. It one that, it, it's one that lets me know that I never have to come to a point of thinking that there has to be an element of my righteousness that will give me standing before God. If I've been brought to Him, I love Him and I love His righteousness and so therefore I love His law and I press on 
that I may move toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, but I stand in the grace of justification. And I can be kind toward others and understanding toward others because I am a justified person. I'm not a person that's been saved by my righteousness. God was patient. God was merciful. God was filled with loving kindness. God drew me with cords of love. And there's never anything that a person can do to me or I can have a person that is an infinitesimal amount of the offense that I had created before God while he was patient with me and then through Christ declared me righteous. It is a grace in which I stand. <clears throat> and now, all growth in knowledge of God and all conformity to Christ that we have Every moment in which we're being made like the Savior in whom we trust and the Savior that we love comes as a result of grace. You therefore, beloved, Peter says, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried off or carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You stand in a grace, but grace is operative every day to give you conformity to Christ, to give you a greater knowledge of Him, to make you more fit in your love for holiness, to be a citizen of that place in which all the inhabitants cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. But we see also that grace is yet future. Grace has been in eternity past. Grace operated in the life of Christ. Grace operated to give us the gospel through the preaching of the apostles. Grace vivified us while we were dead in trespasses and sins. Grace placed us in Christ. Grace is the proclamation of justification. Grace is our growth in grace and our conformity to Christ. And grace is yet to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse Verses 10, no, verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> grace overflowing. You see, the grace of justification and the grace of sanctification is not the end of grace. When Christ comes again, there will be another display of grace. There will be an overflowing of grace in which all of those things are given us that we have hoped for, the hope of eternal life that is placed in our hearts by grace begins to overflow objectively and, rea and in reality and uh, in our experience when Christ comes. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We do not yet know what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he himself is pure. We have a hope. We desire to see Christ, our Redeemer, the perfect one, the one who is pleasing to the Father, the one who bore our sins, the one who conquered death, 
We desire to see him. And when we see him, we will marvel at him. We'll be startled at his glory. And we will see that all the grace that we have received at this present time is hardly anything compared to the ever-increasing flow of grace that Christ brings with him when he comes to receive us to himself. And as we read earlier, <clears throat> in the coming ages, ages upon ages, ages that never end, ages that are never boring, ages that are more beautiful and more joyful, every moment ages that increase exponentially, in the marvel of them, every one of them is filled with grace. In the coming ages, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And then the final <clears throat> words of the New Testament, of the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. If you have been united with Christ by faith and received forgiveness of sins and justification, if you have that ever-growing dissatisfaction with this world and dissatisfaction with your sin and growth in an understanding of the depth and subtlety and heinousness of your sin, if you're frustrated with how it interrupts your understanding of the beauty of Christ and how it keeps you from doing the things that you desire to do and you envision yourself as doing something great for the glory of God and your flesh hinders you. And yet at the same time, you, you keep pressing on. You lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets and you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. If you have, are doing this, you are a recipient of grace. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Grace is grace that brings all of these things to you is yours. If you don't know Christ and you have not received grace, the only aspect of the attributes of God that you will experience will be those attributes of holy wrath, impeccable, absolute justice. And you will spend eternity glorifying God by your mournful realization that His merciless action toward you is just and true. But while you're in this life, there's a call of the gospel, and there's the call of Christ, there's the proclamation of the word, and there's the promise that all who come to him, he will receive. All that believe in him will find eternal life. He that confesses with his lips that Jesus is Lord, meaning that you give an external manifestation of that which you have become convinced of in your mind, 
confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, out of believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the overflowing riches that Christ will show to us in eternity will be the hope of your life. In everything else that you've placed so much hope in and all the things that you thought gave you petty pleasures, they will more and more seem to be nothing compared to the anticipation you have of the pleasures of what it means to know Christ and be found in Him. May God grant you that grace even now. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for the revelation of your word that there is rich and abundant grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich as the one who is the eternal recipient of your love as your son. Yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might be rich. May some even now see the power and wonder of that grace and flee to Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.